Very often, the Lance's story is referred to as a story of war, of course, because we, we think about the last three months and where he was. But this is a story of love. This is a story about a man who loved his family, his God, his nation, his comrade. And I have a tough time with individuals who want the war story. We don't need any more war stories. If this is still the only way we know how to resolve conflict, it's a sad state to be in. And because Lance's story is so unique about what he did in that last three months, he was alone. And I believe he was driven by love, which is a statement that I am putting on the entrance marker to the plaza, which is as follows. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. That sums it up to me for what Lance was doing over there. So indeed, this is a story of love. At the very beginning, when we understood what Lance's um, status was, uh, we were also told as a family not to bring attention to it for fear that our loved one would suffer the consequences potentially. And if in fact he was a POW, which we were not, we did not know that until the war was over, um, there was a concern that uh, they would be more brutally treated. So we adhered to that. And back in, in 1967, uh, I think the support groups around traumatic situations like that didn't really exist. So we were all sort of trying to do what we thought we were supposed to do and it was directed by my mom and dad in terms of we don't really talk about it, we don't cause a fuss, we don't uh, draw in sympathy for ourselves. But then there was a time when the National League of Families was formed and they then began to encourage folks to go out, uh, loved ones of the families of would-be POWs or MIAs in Lance's situation, um, to raise awareness to what was happening to those individuals. There were a lot of propaganda films that were being sent back from North Vietnam to show families here. We were, we were gathered very often at different TV stations to look at those films and we're told that our loved one may not look like they used to look. And so in those gatherings, people would stop the film and try and go back and try and see if that was their loved one, and of course that never happened for us. We understood that the POWs were treated as criminals, and uh, they did not have to adhere to the Geneva Convention rules. And so at that point then, the National League of Families had said, once we've clearly understood that, no, we're, we're going to make um, the masses aware. So my mom took up that mission and um, she had gone with various groups out to Washington DC to talk to various senators and congressmen and, and representatives to say we need to do something. Um, they're not being treated the way that we had uh, thought maybe they were and information was starting to come back to the families through various underground groups that the, the treatment was, was quite horrendous. And then, the, of course, the Vietnamese had stated that this is not a war, and so we do not have to adhere to the, the rules of the Geneva Convention. So my mom went with groups and uh, out to D.C., um, mostly women, mothers and wives, to appeal to those that could make a difference to try and, and get more information about our loved ones. 
She would then come back to Milwaukee. I know there were several times when, say, single-page uh, information that was printed up by the National League of Families and encouraged family members to go out and tell people, she stood on the corner on Wisconsin Avenue in Milwaukee. My mom was very graceful and never wanted to create any conflict. So this was a tough thing for her to do. She loved her children <laughs> with such deep regard and respect, but she would have never caused controversy. That was the furthest from my mom and how she lived her life. She was very non-controversial. And so this was a position for her that was very unusual. And so as she stood on the corner and tried to pass out pamphlets to individuals as they walked by, there were protesters that were also walking up and down Wisconsin Avenue. And several formed a, a crowd around her and then somebody finally slapped out all the, the papers that she was holding and they flew all over the street and she just gracefully began picking them up and trying to send them out again. So this was part of a mission for her. None of us knew what to do. We didn't know how to behave for fear of consequences to Lance. We didn't know if he was a POW. So we had to face things that weren't normally in our lives. And so for my mom, that was so unusual for her to put herself in a place of conflict and contradiction because she was so graceful and soft-spoken. So that was tough on her, but I think as that progressed and she would speak at different events and sometimes get booed off the stage and I think it made her dig her heels in even more. And I wouldn't say she was an activist, that she was out there in a traditional sense, but quietly, gracefully, in my mom's Jane kind of graceful way, continued to speak out about what was happening. People that have come to know Lance through um, the last three months of his life really only are seeing a, a, a glimpse of the individual and who he was. Um, somebody said to me, if you only focus on the last three months of Lance, you miss the measure of the man. That was one of his best friends, Charlie Larson. And those of us that knew him growing up, we already knew who he was. Uh, we knew that he was a, a, a young man with great principles. Um, he would never give up uh, once he set himself, to the point of people saying, gosh, he's stubborn. And yeah, he, he was stubborn. I think the other parts of Lance that people don't know about don't necessarily align with what one would think about being uh, a war hero. Lance had a very sensitive side to him. He was an artist, which people wouldn't normally assume that one who serves and, and is in the middle of an active war. But he, he was an artist, he was a sculptor, he was a painter, he was a, a photographer, and he loved expressing himself through those ways. In fact, he had looked at going to an art school when he was in, in high school. The fact that he was in the military wasn't necessarily that that was his calling uh, to serve in that way but rather he had gone to the Air Force Academy and he was um, committed to serving then after that. So you get a four-year education and then you're committed to serve. And that's what he did. When they asked him 
where he would like to go after he was through pilot training, he in fact uh, said that he wanted to go to Vietnam, which is very like him. Uh, he would have chosen to take the tougher road in making that kind of a decision. He was also a vocalist. He sang in the church choir. He went on to become the lead in The King and I, which lots of folks know uh, from growing up with him that he was quite a lead in The King and I. And so here this young man in high school, let's just look at that period in his life. He's playing football in the fall. He goes on to become all city end on the championship Bayview High School football team. He was also a swimmer. Uh, he was also on track. And then he was also in two different plays at Bayview High School, which at the time were very high-end, high-end productions, beautifully done. I have the original recording of him singing in The King and I, and uh, they had always made an album of the whole live performance, and so that was quite unique back in 1957 and 58 when it was playing. And so all of those things are something that I don't think people align with somebody that showed the, the grit and the tenacity that he did that last three months of his life. If you didn't know him prior to, if you did, you fully understood that that was the Lance that we knew. The F4 that is in honor of Lance was at the um, old 440th Air Force Reserve, which was on College Avenue. And when the 440th relocated down to uh, North Carolina in 2007, it felt very vacant there. It felt as though there was no military presence anymore. There was no guard around it anymore. Uh, it was going to be developed into a business park, but it didn't have really many uh, businesses there, so it wasn't active. And it just felt like it was in a place that was not visible enough, not um, engaging enough. It wouldn't draw you in. Uh, it was sort of unidentifiable. What is that? So in 2008, a year after they had left the 440th, I started making soft inquiries as to who owns that plane and who has the ability to make a decision where it can go and where can it go. And so there's a series of layers that internally the airport wasn't even sure who owned it, who had jurisdiction over it. So through uh, lots of investigation and discovery, I found that the aircraft itself was owned by the Wright-Patterson Air Force Museum out at Dayton, Ohio. And so getting through to them, trying to figure out who to call there, and I found out that you know I could speak with one individual woman who told me that that aircraft was in fact on loan to Milwaukee County and that it could be moved to any Milwaukee County location and that I would have to follow certain guidelines to do that and get the proper channels to approve if it could be moved, where it could be moved. And so I began making calls to different individuals at the airport, county executive's office, veterans groups, trying to determine where it might be best displayed and where it could be most engaging for individuals to come to that place and reflect. I've often talked about serving in and out of a uniform. Um, it isn't just those who are in a uniform that serve, it's, it's many other ways and we're each of us built and designed for very specifics in our life and if we can recognize those we'll be better off for it to be able to, to do what our long suit is. So 
there were several locations that were chosen. Um, the final location right now was uh, through meetings with the airport director and folks from Madison and we determined that that new spot that it is now on Howell Avenue at the entrance of the airport would be something that would be approved but that I would need to get the funding for it and be in charge of moving it and the connections to the Air Force uh, Museum as to how and I'd never done anything like that before I, I didn't even know where to begin but I knew I knew it had to be moved and so my mom had talked several years ago prior to her passing how wonderful it would be they had talked about doing some new development for the airport Mitchell Airport and how wonderful it would be if it was at the front of the airport so I always had that in the back of my mind and I thought well I think she's right I think that would be a great place because there were some discussions about moving it down to Veterans Park at the lakefront that's a county-owned property so really any county-owned property uh, it was it was going to be approved by those who owned it at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and so I just began talking to different contractors about how do you move an aircraft how do you do that and who do you go to <laughs> we move planes or us or how do you, where do you go so uh, there were a couple of national companies that do it specifically and I talked to one of them and they gave me some costs just to just to move it was 62,000 and so I again was not sure how I was going to do it but I was committed to to moving it and so I just began a series of walking into different companies that I thought would be part of this project so I've lived my life I, I live through my instincts my instincts are probably the thing that guide me the most in my life and my instincts were to just walk in and not make phone calls and not go through the layers and so I discovered that the aircraft was moved in 2007 to demilitarize it and the, the company that did that was Marshall Erecting and they were in the city of Milwaukee so I thought well I'm gonna start there I'm gonna start with finding out where they are and just walking into the office and seeing if I could speak with somebody and so I did and as I did I I walked into the lobby and there was this beautifully framed photograph of Lance's aircraft being lifted off back in 2007 they had great pride and the fact that they were involved in that project and I thought oh my gosh I'm in the right place <laughs> they continued to take pride in the fact that they were involved in that so I asked for the owner we sat down for a couple different conversations I explained um, Lance's story which they didn't really know fully what the story was about and I said I'm gonna ask you to start this mission with me and try and move this aircraft so we began and uh, Paul Marshall who really was very willing to participate but thought how are we going to get anybody else to participate I mean you mean they're just going to help and I said I guess if we ask we'll find out so we began talking to different contractors that they had relationships with and one by one they lined up and said we'll help absolutely will help and so before I knew it in probably six to eight months time the contracting team was completely aligned there were a lot of other individual costs that we had to to be prepared to pay but the contractors were there to help with the expertise and doing a lot of the work and so we began through those relationships well if Lance were sitting next to us he'd say the aw shucks that's you know that's too much my faith tells me that from where he sits now he understands the value of this bigger story 
And that's what I had to come to understand as well. So it took me decades to be able to work through my personal loss, my family's loss, and most specifically what happened to him, to a greater recognition of the story and how many tens of thousands of people Lance's life has touched. And once I began to understand the greater value for his story, for some to connect to what they are capable of, what each individual is capable of. Lance's last three months is, is against all odds. We had been taught most of our lives that your body can only sustain without X amount of days without water or food or medical attention to so many of the injuries that he had. And I think he was trying to tell us something in that life story. If you look at, the, if you zoom out and you look at the bigger picture as to each of us as individuals and when we're here walking on the earth and what we carve out our lives to become and what choices we have and who will be touched by those choices we made all of our lives. And so I think he did it in such an incredibly powerful way. And I think that I have been built and designed in my life path to continue to reach out and, and make his story available to the masses. It's very available and known in the military. But I think it has a, a much greater reach if we get it out to the masses. And so very often when I'm talking about him, I like to talk about the things that you have in common with him. Because somebody that they consider a, a superhuman or superhero, people can often think, well, that's great and that's inspiring, but I, I could never do that. Well, he was making decisions in small, medium, and large doses throughout his life that prepared him for something that he didn't know was coming. Well, does that sound familiar for any of us? Don't we all make decisions in small, medium, and large doses for something we're not even aware that's coming? And so whatever it is for us, each one of us, it's unique unto us. And so to prepare for that, if you bring your best every day to each subject matter that you're approaching, you come with intent, you come with passion, and each time you come is a different measurement. It's not always going to be the A+, but it's your best for that day. That's something that Lance did. That's something that those who knew him before that knew they did, that he did that. He also encouraged you to bring your best. He was very supportive if indeed you were pursuing it, whatever it was, to the best of your ability. Then he was very supportive. If you weren't, he had less tolerance for that. He wanted you to bring it. He wanted you to bring it. And so in that way, sometimes I think that uh, he might have appeared stubborn or, um, and, and for what he did, I think stubborn would have to be part of his persona for what he did because he chose not to give up. I often talk about that story so unique. Normally, the recipient of a Medal of Honor receives it from some act of courage and strength and where your adrenaline is flowing and they do things that they normally wouldn't do and they've saved people and they have gone after the enemy and all of those things. That wasn't Lance's story. This was a very unusual Medal of Honor recipient. In fact, it was discussed whether or not that should be a traditional Medal of Honor recipient because he was alone. And when you're alone and the enemy isn't directly in front of you and your comrades are not directly around you, 
it's Lance versus Lance in the jungle. I think probably one of the most challenging parts of that three months for him was denying the voice in his head that told him he couldn't, he couldn't do this. Give it up. Stop. It's not worth it. And again, isn't that what we all get at different times in our lives? We all get that little voice that tells us we can't do it. It's not worth it. Give it up. And to the degree by which he did it, alone in the jungle, 46 days, it's miraculous that he even did it. And so that's another thing that I say to people. We do that in our own lives every day. And to the degree to which he did it, very often people say to me that once they come to know Lance's story, that from that point on, when they are brought to a challenge or a hurdle, and they think of Lance's story, they say this, well, if he could do that, then I can do this. And that's one of the most common things that people say to me. The other thing is they ask me, how did he do what he did? Well, I don't think any of us are ever going to be able to answer that, but I can tell you that that very thing I talk about, preparing yourself every day, bringing your very best for a challenge, you are unaware of what's coming. He did that brilliantly throughout his life. So I have been working on a documentary film, uh, a feature documentary, 90 Minutes, uh, for the past six years. We have not been funded. So you gather when you can, and I have some tremendously talented individuals that just happen to live in Milwaukee, but they work all over the nation. So very often people don't appreciate the talent that we have right here in Milwaukee. We have, uh, the production value is very high. We're shooting with the red, and it's going to be quite an impressive uh, documentary. So we've been able to interview several integral individuals that have had a tremendous impact on Lance's life or he on there, some of which have already passed. Uh, so we have had a window that we really are looking to tell the wholeness of Lance's story rather than focus on the last three months. And uh, I would say that we are close to being done filming in the next month as we have this dedication for the aircraft, there's a few individuals who we have felt very clearly that we needed an interview from them to complete the story. And they will be coming up to attend the dedication, so we have some interviews scheduled with them. And then we're just about done with the interviews at that point and we'll begin doing the editing. And so we anticipate the film being ready in 2018. Um, in terms of our Serbian heritage, my father was firstborn generation here and uh, very, very proud of his Serbian roots and heritage and often touted them as the greatest warriors to ever live. <laughs> and so if you ask a Serb, I think they'll tell you much of the same. And there really is a story uh, that highlights the veracity of a particular clan of Serbians that were the Sajans. And that's a very interesting story, and um, I think my father adhered to that, and so he felt very proud of that fact. Lance was baptized Serbian Orthodox, and my father attended the church. My grandfather, his father, was one of the founding fathers of St. Salvat Serbian Church here in Milwaukee. And so there was somewhat of a connection to the Serbian community. I think it had more to do with the sense of pride than the engagement in it. When Lance's story became known and he received the Medal of Honor and other honors 
the Serbian community felt very proud of him. They have at the Serb Hall, they have a Hall of Heroes there and they have Lance featured there. In the last couple of years as I've been raising awareness to Lance's story, I have connected with several different Serbian communities in the States as well as over in Yugoslavia and Serbia. Uh, they've actually reached out to me and I think because of ways of social media it allows them to do that so I've had a lot of different individuals connect with me and there's a coffee table book being read about uh, famous Serbians there's a film that's being done about famous Serbians and so each one of them indirectly as they talk to me say that Lance is, is the second most famous Serbian Tesla being the first I say, well, that's wonderful. He would, he would love to know that, and I think more than that, my father would just be bursting with pride. So that, that would be our connection to the Serbian community. I think because the story was so personal for me in regard to the loss of my brother and the guidance of my mother in being very protective of the story, as well as we didn't know what had happened to Lance, so there was no final way to feel. There was no chapter that closed. We were each in the family, each of us exploring in our own individual ways. And it was such an open-ended event. Uh, so more than how the war affected me, I was so personally affected by the loss of my beloved brother and the unity of the family and each event that was so clearly evident that he was not at. And I think after years and years, people didn't know what to say to us. They didn't know how to breach the subject. And that's not just common because he was uh, missing in action. It's common for all folks who have gone through tragedy. And people don't know, is this the right time to bring it up, the wrong time? But the situation we were in was so unique because we just we didn't know what had happened. And even within our family, we didn't talk about it a lot. It's the way of that generation. It's what we did back then. Um, there were no support groups. I personally was in high school when Students for a Democratic Society was forming, SDS, and they were anti-war and they were having demonstrations at the high school I was at. And as I would exit the school and they were demonstrating, friends of mine that I had grown up with that knew Lance and knew us as kids were part of that group that was shouting out and saying specifically to me that my brother was a baby killer. I, um, I was speechless. So I was just trying to get through to the, the end of this story, the end of this chat, what happened? And, and when the war was over, that wasn't it either. That didn't end it for us either. We really didn't know what had happened to Lance. The first time we heard any details was when we were sitting in the White House as my parents received posthumously the Medal of Honor for Lance. When that citation was read, those were the first details I had ever heard. And I only heard the words emaciated, tortured, and I'm sure that's the same for other family members that were there. So as Lance's story became more widely understood, particularly in the military, um, the details of Lance's story really didn't come to us until m decades later. Because after all, who's going to tell us that? 
and there were only a few witnesses to it. And as I began this journey into telling Lance's story in a, in a broader stroke, and a broader brush stroke, I began to talk to the individuals that were really part of that last three months. And I learned more than I had ever known before. There was a book written about Lance, Into the Mouth of the Cat, um, by Malcolm McConnell. And Malcolm McConnell had interviewed all of the individuals that were with him, uh, other individuals that he grew up with, other friends, and wrote this book, Into the Mouth of the Cat, that was released, I believe, in 1983 or 84, telling much of the story and the details. And, and so now I, I probably have more understanding. When the Vietnam War started, I'm a young girl. We're, we're, not, we're not seeing it on the TV every day, and we're not getting social media information about it. We don't, we don't really know what's happening. All we know is that the day my brother went over, which was in July of 67, I had a personal connection to, is he going to be okay? The politics of it, did I understand? No. Uh, I understand much more at this place in my life than I did as a, a young girl growing up. My father was very uh, involved in the political side of it and had some tremendous anger in regard to how uh, the war was being executed and again not knowing where his son was and a visual that is just heartbreaking is thinking of a father poring over maps at his desk trying to understand where his son was and not being able to do anything about it. The other thing I, I have come to so clearly know is how each of our lives has concentric circles that touch so many others. This is a perfect example of that. Because of Lance's life, would I change how that affected me? I wouldn't. He's one of the brightest lights in guiding me to finding my best self. If we, if we only look at the last three months of Lance's life and the way he died, and we only see the tragedy in it, we've missed so much. We've missed the understanding of how big our lives can become and who they can touch. And if we end it at the time we close our eyes for the last time here, where's the hope? Where's the hope in any of this? I know who I am. <laughs> and um, I know my intent. And my intent is nothing but love for him, those who loved him, uh, those who are touched by him. And so if I'm off the mark on something, it isn't by intent. <laughs> um, and so I, I um, feel very committed to this because of the love I have for him, because of the love I have for my parents, and because of the understanding I have by zooming out of this one story, how many lives it can touch, how much light it can shed for those who are in the dark. Maybe not all, but some. And so this is one more story that can help you find your own personal North Star. If it can help you get back up again when you have fallen short. If it can help you understand what one life can do. So very often we think, oh, we're just in the masses and we're one of so many. We are one to so many, 
just one <laughs> and and we we do make a difference to those people around us and we don't even know we don't know what's coming in our lives and we don't know how our lives will impact generations to come so uh, yep I'm, I'm driven this is this is my mission